Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King. I'm Brendan Porter. And we are on episode 14, 14 podcasts. Now, we've been doing Photog Adventures for this whole year. Brendan and I have been building content before we actually went live. But when we first and finally went out with our first podcast, we had seven episodes technically recorded. Four of them were audio. Three of them were video files that just... They bombed. They didn't work out. We had technical glitches everywhere. Yeah, we tried doing this remote thing because he lives a half an hour away from me. So it just it was, yeah, it wasn't it was working really bad. So we rebuilt our situation. We built this nice little recording booth where we have right now that we're recording our podcast on using the Tascam. It has been fantastic. And since then, September 8th, we have now 14 podcasts. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations, us. Hey, and congratulations, <laughs> you guys. Thank you so much for following us and listening. We got some user feedback, which is why you probably heard it in this episode and last. We have a new intro sound. It was something that Brendan really wanted me to focus on in the beginning was more of an epic sound. And I just thought a happy-go-lucky feel was also good, and I shouldn't have. So now we got some feedback from a listener, and we went with it. So thanks so much, William. I mean, it's fine. It's not horrible, but William pointed out to us that it could be better. So. And it is. Yeah. So episode 14, I'm so stoked. It's Christmas, and I can't wait to get back in 2017. Yeah. Um, we haven't really gone out for any real snow shots. Oh, um, my God. We need to get some more equipment. We're not really equipped to go out in the snow. We need, like, some snowshoes. We've got, like, all the, like, clothing and stuff. The snow is really hard to go out and get into. Yeah. And I'm excited for the spring to come now. I uh, love winter sports. I love snow, my snowboarding and stuff that I do. But I don't really do a whole lot of pictures during the wintertime. Because I don't like freezing my buns off when I'm going out to <laughs> take a picture. Except that we did every time we went out for astrophotography. Except we did, but still, it wasn't like... We could still come back to the valley and thaw out. Yeah, you know, Here, true. it's like when it's 9 degrees at your own home, you don't want to go out anywhere else colder <laughs> than that. You really don't. So I'm excited to go out in spring. I'm excited to go out and uh, and do some more landscape stuff with some snow thawing and run, running water and, you know, more. Oh, man, more no kidding. We're just days away, days away from 2017. So here we go. Let's talk about what we learned in 2016. Photog Adventures is brand new, but what did we learn? My first thing that I learned, and a lot of you are probably going through this, you might be new to cameras like I was in the beginning of 2016 when I was making that big decision. I'm going to buy a DSLR. Always wanted one. Saw Nikon, saw Canon, but why which one? Why this? Why that? I'm not going to discuss whether you go with Canon or Nikon. I'm going to discuss whether you go with a crop sensor or a full frame. It always depends on what kind of photography you want to do. And when you're looking at what Photog Adventures is all about, landscape photography and astrophotography, I'm going to talk about it from that perspective. Landscape photography, you would want to have as much fitting in your frame as possible, but I find in landscape photography, I have a lot more leniency with the crop sensor than I did with astrophotography. And why is that? In landscape photography, while you try and have a foreground element, you're most often getting a foreground element and looking out over a vista. You're looking mm -hmm. over into the sunset or up at something huge that's way in the distance, but close. The Milky Way was always practically straight up and mm. always at an angle that your foreground object wasn't something that was far away with multiple things. That's the other thing about daytime landscape photography is landscape photography, you would have multiple elements that were visible in your shot just as well depending on the light it built up the whole scene. Astrophotography, we had to light paint what we wanted to be visible in our scene. Yeah. 
Unless, You've got to have external light source. Exactly. Yeah. Unless you use the moon or something, you had to light it. And so more often than not, that foreground object was very close. It was a tight situation, and we tried to balance it around the Milky Way. And then you had kind of one perspective that you really wanted. There weren't a lot of options. There were some had many options. But like the trestle, for example, that was where it really became clear that that Canon 70D that I started out with that was a crop sensor wasn't going to be good enough. And what you were seeing in my frame, even from the first experience we had out, yeah, out, out, out the, by out Strawberry, Lake, Strawberry Reservoir, we went out there. I had a 24 millimeter Canon tilt shift lens, which was the only wide angle lens I had at the time. And then you had the 24 millimeter Rokinon. And just from you looking at my camera, you're like, what? Like, how did you get that all in I your frame? I had to do a panorama just to right. get half of that. Right. And I was just like, oh. 5D Mark III, I guess, is showing <laughs> One showing off here. Yeah, And so here I was feeling disappointed already with that, but then we went to the Knolls, and I got a panorama that's fantastic. And it wasn't hard to do the panorama. Right. And yeah, I was stitching 37 images together. That was an extreme panorama. I didn't have to even have as much overlap as I had that morning. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't hard to do a panorama, so I thought, I could be fine with a 70D. And then the trestle, there was no saving with the panorama. And why is because in this situation, to get the trestle, this train bridge to be in the frame with the Milky Way that I wanted, I could not get any closer to it. I had to be further back. And then there was this hill that was rising behind us. And if I kept going further back, further back, not only would I hit the road, but I was going to be up higher. Uphill, yeah. yeah. So and it was a very, yeah, it was a very inconvenient spot. Yeah, you moved away from the Milky Way from the trestle, or the trestle was all the, entirely below the Milky mm-hmm. Way. And the only shot that was good was down where we were standing. You had a full-frame camera. You had 17-millimeter. I had 24-millimeter. But in the crop factor of the 24-millimeter, it came a 37, 35-millimeter. Mm-hmm. And that was junk. It was junk for that scene. Yeah. Very quickly did I find out that if I'm going to do astrophotography, I want to use my millimeter of whatever I got to this full effect. And I didn't want to mess around anymore with dealing with the crop factor or dealing anymore with trying to get, you know, I'll get further back and get this in frame. No, I didn't want to do that anymore. So for me personally, crop sensor did not work for astrophotography. I wouldn't personally recommend it unless you're going to do a lot of wide scenery, vista photography with your astrophotography, because in those scenes, you just don't know if it's crop factor or not. Yeah, that's true. And with the 17 millimeter on my, on my full frame, sensor it was really wide i mean i couldn't believe when i first Mm. got that lens how much i was getting in frame it was just crazy probably a perfect example of that is the wide vista that we had that was mirror lake and -hmm. you were just two feet to my right with your 17 millimeter i'm on a 24 millimeter with a crop factor Mm. and we had completely different outputs from that same shot yeah and yours is the better one If I'm going to summarize real quickly how I learned it or what I learned, I learned that full frame and crop sensor you can get by with either one and you can do great depending on your photography. But if you're doing astrophotography, definitely stay away from the crop sensor. Get yourself a wider angle so that you can take more advantage of a wide angle, fast aperture, fast lens. It was so much better for me once I did that. And for me, what I learned mostly in 2016 was just getting out there. Like I had my cameras and I'd go take pictures of like snowflakes and my flowers and stuff. And I was very comfortable taking pictures at home. But then after a while, I've lived there for like 12 years. So after so many 12 (laughs) springs, you're just like, I don't want to shoot my flowers anymore. I already got these pictures and some of them are fantastic. I can't get better. Anyways, now what do I do? And so when you came to me and said, hey, I'm going to go out and do some 
shooting the Milky Way. It's going to be 10 degrees at night, but hey, let's go do it. And I was like, hey, okay, I'm, I'm game for that. And so my from eyes there, went wide when you said that you were game for that. I was like, really? Someone else is willing to do that? Yeah, because because for me, I had never done it before. So <laughs> as we had mentioned in, maybe in our previous podcasts or maybe in previous videos that um, for me, that was the first time I ever got a Milky Way shot. And I never, ever took the time and effort to really learn about how to shoot the Milky Way. I was always impressed and always wondered how these people were getting these shots. So for me to get out there and do it and have my own results was fantastic. I couldn't believe it. So I was sold. At that point, I was just like, hey, if we're going to do this anymore, I'm totally game. Let's, let's go out as often as we can. This is awesome. For me, it was just learning that it's okay for me to go out. My kids are asleep. We're going to go out and do night shooting. It's perfect. And so let's just get together and do it. And just, I think having someone else to do it was really yep. huge. That's what I was going to say. For me doing it my own, I probably would have never have done it. And so just knowing that I could just tag along with you and go and just learn what you're doing and kind of just copy along and take cool shots too, I was, pff, it was awesome. So <laughs> In 2015, I got a telescope. And I was going out as often as I could, but no one not a soul wanted to come with me. Which my, is kind of weird, isn't it? Like I thought mm. I'd get more people. Mm. I got my astronomy class to come out with me to a location once, and that was awesome. Mm -hmm. But then I would come home that night from work and realize, hey, the sky is perfectly clear. Don't waste this opportunity. Get your telescope out. My wife didn't want to come. My buddy didn't want to come who lives down the street. Mm. It was just like, well, you going right now? Yeah, when are you be back? Probably 2 a.m. I have work tomorrow. I don't yeah. want to go. Yeah, And so I was going out a ton on my own, freaking myself out, thinking I need a dog because I got to go out here with a dog and not feel so alone. Mm. And then when I got my digital SLR and you said you were willing to come, that first night with the Milky Way, having someone else that came out with me to the Milky Way and sharing the awe and awesomeness that is the Milky Way, plus going to some place that I probably wouldn't have gone with my telescope because I would have felt very vulnerable and isolated out there yeah. alone. What if this happens? Or what if that doesn't work? Or the car stops working? I'd have been more freaked out about all these different contingencies and issues that circumstances <laughs> that could happen. And so I wouldn't have had that experience. And so like a lot of you out there thinking in 2017, I want to lose some weight and need a workout buddy. Get a photography buddy. Yeah, buddy system's definitely the way to go. It's been so fun, so awesome. Other than the times that you get a better shot than me, I love it. So if you're in a similar situation where you love this thing, you want to go out photography, you want to do more night shooting and stuff like that, or even just regular landscape, find someone to meet up with. So if you do, if you don't have a friend that's currently interested, like we we were lucky because we we're actually like you know related somewhat. So um, he's but my wife's you, cousin. So we're yeah we're cousins in law. And, um, so it was really convenient for us to, to meet up and start doing stuff because we already had that connection. But if you don't have anybody and you're totally isolated and none of your friends are interested in this thing, <laughs> go to meetups.com. Is it meetups? Yeah. Meetup. Yeah. Go to meetup and, um, or Google it and find someone in your area who's interested and make a couple new friends, you know, cause they're going to have sim similar interests. And uh, if you can probably find someone that's close in age and uh, you guys can talk about the same stuff in music or whatever, but, but at least you have the, at least you have the commonality of meeting up with, with a group of people, make a couple new friends. Sometimes it's hard to go out and meet new people, but it's really easy if you're interested in the same thing. And yeah. so just go out there, man. It's, that's, all, that's all I can say is I went out there with Darren and it just changed. It's basically changed our lives. I mean, this year has been like <laughs> life-changing. And because uh, we're really putting this as a focus and been doing this, I would have never podcasted on my own and I probably would have never made YouTube videos on my own. And so 
if you want to do any of these things, go find a buddy. It's, it's just that simple. And like the situation that you all have with day jobs and families, if you have a buddy that you've committed to to go out on that weekend, when the time comes and the other things arise that usually would prevent you from making that decision of still going out, you've got an obligation. I'm accountable to that person. I said I was going to go, mm-hmm. and your wife is more okay with it. Your family's okay with it. You understand this is just what we've decided. And then once you're out and going, man, you don't regret even a second of right. it. Right. Even if you're just randomly f- traveling around Notch Peak, a place you've never been, and just exploring. It's- because things at home will always happen. You know, there's always yeah. going to be something, you know, yeah, you're going to come back and the laundry still needs to be done. Who cares? That would have been <laughs> done anyways. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, if you really want to do it, go out there and do it. And finding a buddy is going to make it that much easier. Mixed in with the long notes, I also want to do some quick notes, some quick things that we learned. And the first quick one that I learned was magic lantern versus an external intervalometer. When you're doing a star trail, a time lapse, or you're going for something that's a long exposure beyond the 30 seconds. I started out using intervalometer. You, Brennan, you had the magic lantern from the very beginning, right? Yeah, I've been using it since the 60D. And so I was thinking, I... Fine with this device. I like how it's in my hand and I'm ready. A lot less to worry about. Plus, I don't have my firmware of my camera being set to something different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I felt more comfortable with the external intervalometer. Until? <laughs> yeah. One of the major things I learned was that when you hit that intervalometer and you're working right and left, you have that paddle. It's a wheel paddle. And up, down, left, right is capable of being hit while you hit one of the other ones. If you go at too much of like a northwest, northeast, or a southwest, southeast direction on the on the paddle. Mm-hmm. I was trying to change to the next setting that goes to the interval interval between my shots and in Bryce Canyon I sat there turning right 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 checking my settings double checking my settings making sure I did this right and I accidentally hit up as I was hitting right as I was going through the shutter settings and the hour setting I sent it to 99 I actually sent my hour setting to 99 didn't see it didn't notice that as I was going through in the dark because it went up from zero the next number which Which rolled over to 99 and i had no idea and the dang thing has an interval interval setting that would cause it to go to its next interval but since the shutter was just set to be open constantly in bulb mode it shot four hours straight three hours straight i think it was of exposure and of course anyone knows after about 10 minutes maybe even less at my settings that I had it on which was a higher ISO than I normally would do and it was also at a wide aperture I ended up with a shot that was pure white white screen I took the Perseid meteor shower the peak of the Perseid meteor shower in Bryce Canyon and came home with a white piece of paper Yeah you were so depressed that next morning it was like <laughs> Unbelievable. So if your comfort level isn't quite there with dealing with putting a firmware software on a card, a memory card, installing it to your in your camera, and then running it through the system and making sure the firmware is updated to the Magic Lantern firmware, and you don't feel comfortable getting rid of that after the fact, if you feel like it's not working well on your camera, then don't mess with it. But if you are comfortable, I fully recommend it. It has so many more features. Now, its settings for time-lapse intervalometer 
practically the same, but you get a lot of information like, hey, if you do this, this will take you this many real-time hours, and you end up with this much real-time seconds at 24 frames per second. It gives you information like that that you and it'll can actually, use. And it'll actually tell you when your card's going to get full. Oh, right, that too. It'll say, hey, this will only go about two hours because the yeah, card it's fills like up. You've only got 200 pictures left. You can't do 340 pictures. You've only yep. got 200 left. So. so that's a huge bonus. Definitely learned Magic Lanterns for me, not interferometers. Yeah, Magic Lantern is the reason why I bought Canon and stuck with Canon, really, is because of that extra software that gives you that those extra features. That's and it's nothing to do with Canon, thing. too. It's a, it's other guys. It's yeah, a third it's party. <laughs> but I guess the Nikon firmware is just so much harder to hack that people just haven't bothered. I think it's just barely getting around to the point where people are starting to hack the Nikons because they're so sick of the Canon guys pointing their fingers going, eh, eh, I can't imagine <laughs> don't. So for 2016, I did more time lapses this year than I think I've done in all of the past 12 years combined. I played around with some time lapses with some older cameras outside my window with clouds, and that was kind of cool, but it was only like 640 by 480, like resolutions, like really bad. I'm really excited about what I learned, and they're really just small things. You know, I didn't really learn anything like huge, like, duh, you know, but um, just little things that to make your time lapses better, you know. So so this year I'm going to focus more on like um, the ramping, you know, so exposure ramping. So when you're taking a, a moon, moon to daylight or daylight to dark, that it doesn't go all crazy and wash out your your frames and stuff, you know, so. Um, for instance, the first, one of the first time lapses we did of the Milky Way was over at Notch Peak. And if you've guys seen the video of the Notch Peak area, then, um, in the end of the time lapse, or is that on, is that on the video? We don't even have a video of the Notch Peak area. All I have is a time lapse. Okay. Cut that. So, okay. When you guys see the video of the time lapses we've done for the whole year, Start over. <laughs> when you guys see the video of the time lapses that we've done for the whole year and com- and compiled them, you'll see in the Notch Peak one, which will be one of the first ones, that uh, it washes out to when the when the sun rises, it just goes all white because oh, yeah. the ISO is so high, and so the camera will actually the firmware Magic Lantern will actually ramp it down so you can keep that decent exposure, which is cool. So I got I got I'm gonna play around with that some more this year. I really didn't mess with that this year. But next year, I've got motivation to do that. I'm excited. And, um, yeah, just little things. Like, I just picked up a Genie, a Syrup Genie. So I'm going to play with that in 2017. That'll be really fun. That'll take my time lapses to the next level. And I'm excited to start using that thing. And, uh, yeah, just so just little things that just kind of clued me into what I can improve, basically. And that's what I'm. That's what I was kind of cool about getting all that practice in 2016 time lapses. So, I mean, we did a lot. I mean, I probably have, like, at least 10 or 12, maybe more. I mean, I'm starting to stack them up in my folder. So it's a lot of time lapses. And yeah, the what I've learned from beginning to end too is like Notch Peak was my first time lapse doing the Milky Way. And then when I did my one of my last ones, which was um, over in uh, Mirror Lake, the quality is just insanely better. Yeah. And it's just little things, just like setting the ISO just one notch down lower. And then opening your aperture just a little bit wider so you get to get a cleaner image, you know. And so just those little tweaks made such a huge difference. Not to mention the constant lighting, the light painting of the terrain. Right. Having a constant light really helped too. And so having those little things like constant light 
And then we did that in uh, Zions as well, having a constant light. And so all those little things that you pick up as you go along, because we've been practicing those all year. So you get a little bit better, each incrementally better. And what's cool is to look back at the end of the year and be like, wow, this is night and day quality difference between the first yeah. one and the last one. And it's cool to see that. So I'm excited to start 2017 with that big foot forward, you know. I'm planning on getting so many time lapses in 2017 that we can compile a five-minute just time-lapse highlight reel for 2017 next year. We'll do one for this year. It'll just be very short. It'll be like a one-minute Facebook video. But next year, we could have a featured YouTube video of it. Post-processing on my part's gotten way better, too. Oh, yeah. It looks awesome. And we have this focus, this mindset that when we get out to an area, we're going to put one camera to a dedicated time-lapse so that we have that when we leave. We're not always getting a portfolio shot on both cameras, and when we aren't, man, time lapses, time lapses, time lapses. Yeah. Let's go ahead and take our first break of the night, and we'll come back and talk more about what we learned in 2016. Hey, welcome back, guys. We're talking about what we learned in 2016. And one of the big things that I really focused on was post-processing. So I was forced to leave Apple's Aperture that I loved using oh, yeah, they got for rid years of and years. Because after three years of no updates, I mean, after two years, I started get, like getting the itch, like, <laughs> uh, yeah. what do I do? And so Lightroom was my only next option, really. I mean, I was hesitant. I hadn't heard like the greatest things about Lightroom, but then they finally made like, you know, the, uh, the CC 2015 version. And I was like, okay, I guess it's time. You know, it's been like three years now. Time to move over. So that was a huge ordeal. I mean, I had to get new hard drives. I just basically redid my whole system and said, okay, switching everything over and just transferred everything over to mm, what a pain to light was. from to Lightroom from my Aperture, and it was like a fifteen hour process. I mean, I had <laughs> I imagine. twelve years of photos. I think I had over seventy thousand photos to migrate. So, oh god, it was a big deal so with that being said it forced me to learn lightroom which was actually a good thing so i started getting online learning tutorials watching videos seeing what other people are doing for their tips and tricks and results and and i started implementing those and from the beginning of using lightroom early i'd say early this spring to now it's huge i mean i barely touched the settings when i first started you know messing with my photos and now when I go to process, I touch almost every single setting, tweak everything just a little <laughs> bit even, but I have to go through and see if it makes a difference. And so now I'm very comfortable with the, with the development of it and uh, it's been really good. So I'm kind of like, when I have some free time, I kind of get, get the itch to look back at some of my old photos and redo them. And um, I found that it's with the fall colors and spe- specifically I learned a little something new the week or two after I did the fall colors originally. And then I went back to that and reprocessed it. And it was like almost twice as good. I mean, the picture quality was amazing after I'd, oh, I was like, yeah. Oh wow. I'm so glad. So you returned the colors to the reds that were blown out. I mean, the Canon camera can have red blow out where the color itself blows out. And you had mm-hmm. those trees. The detail was lost in the leaves. Yeah, it was in the kind first of exp- washed out with a single color or yeah. too oversaturated kind of thing. At least in so. the first version of your processing of it. Right. And so we, because we did some prints and the prints really showed yeah. that oversaturation. So 
I was able to turn those down, but then still keep that bright, vibrant, vibrant color and keep the detail. And I was like super amazed with how well it turned <laughs> out a second go. So, uh, my tip for you guys out there is don't give up on your skills when you're sharpening them. Go back to a picture you love and reprocess it, and you might be amazed at how good it actually can turn out. Twice as good, maybe. Maybe. One thing I want to add yeah. with my Lightroom experience is that I came to the point to where after doing a pattern of this first, this first, bring the whites out of here, bring this up, shadows down, blah, blah, or up, I, I had those patterns and routines that I was going through. Mm-hmm. I got to the point to where I was gathering presets, other people's presets, Jim Harmer's presets, presets from David Kingham, presets from other people that I was following. Mm-hmm. And man, it was awesome going through the library of presets, just kind of hover your mouse over and see what it does to your photo. Yeah. It was a perfect starting point, like a jumping off point that let me see what was there in my shot that I could get. And then I was going to tweak and fix and move that curve just the way I wanted it to be for what I envisioned originally and then lost it when I came back weeks later and checked out the raw and thought, ah, what's, something's lacking here. Ah, I just, it began simply and grew into something that now I have time that I spend in the HSL panel, which I never would touch before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've been doing that as well. And one thing that really helped me with my processing was shooting in raw. And that's something I wasn't really doing a whole lot of. It didn't seem it was necessary at first because it was just yeah. a large file and still look like the same thing you ever got. Right. So I would always I would just default to JPEG just because I could take way more pictures. And before it was like pictures of my kids and stuff and, you know, the right. trips we'd take, but nothing really specifically, you know, that engrossing. So when we started doing more astrophotography, then you asked me, are you shooting raw? I said, no. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what do you do then? How do yeah. you have control over all this? And I'm just like, uh, I just usually just do JPEG. So, <laughs> so that's one thing. Is So shooting raw, moving over to Lightroom, then shooting raw, then processing everything in raw. I've just got so much more leg room, so much more like room to process stuff, so many more um, just little fine details, you know, yeah. that you get with raw processing versus JPEG. JPEG is really limited. It's nice to have the full data there. It's like working with a digital negative, and it's just really great. Yeah, so. and I love the part about Lightroom where you have no destruction happening, and so you can look back and see how it looked before you made that tweak or this tweak combined with this tweak. Oh, yeah, I love doing the before and after. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. like, this looked great right here, and then you do something else. You're like, whoa, mm-hmm. the picture is singing now or before it was just not there. You right. thought it was there then, but then you didn't realize what you were missing. Yeah. So you tweak a little more. Yeah. So any of you guys thinking about astrophotography and thinking, I want to capture the Milky Way. I've always wanted to capture the Milky Way. I see other people with their beautiful shots. What you need in order to get that Milky Way and what we've discovered this last year can be boiled down to five simple things. And three of those things don't have anything to do with the camera that's in your hands. And those things are, don't go out when there's a moon. Flat out, if the moon's out, your best shot for the Milky Way will be when there's no moon. Does this mean it has to be a new moon? No, 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 no. Just know when the moon rises and sets and make sure it rises and sets in tip number two. Astronomical dawn and dusk will kill your Milky Way. If you've seen the time lapses we've done around the trestle or around dawn, you'll see that it goes from black to blue. The sky completely brightens up and it's not light. And you're out there with your eyes and you're looking around, it's pitch black or it seems pitch black to you. Yeah, your eyes don't really catch it. No. You take the picture of your camera and all of a sudden the Milky Way is gone. It's faded away. 
I'd been there once when I was just setting up my focus, thinking I had another half an hour at least before Astronomical Dawn. I took a picture, tested the focus, took another picture, and in that second picture, Milky Way was gone. Hmm. It was so depressing. I'm like, is it really? And I look at it, and you can kind of watch it just fading away. Once Astronomical Dawn has begun, your Milky Way will not be great. It will be very faint, if anything at all. And you want to make sure that right after the sun sets and it's dark and you're thinking it's good timing, double check. Is it Astronomical Dusk still? Because if it's not beyond Astronomical Dusk, you're not going to have a great Milky Way. Now, at a sunset with no moon and an Astronomical Dusk is just barely um, just barely beginning, you're going to see the Milky Way in the camera, but it won't be as pronounced and as vivid as you're thinking. So, first off, make sure the moon's not up. Make sure that you have Astronomical Dawn and Dusk figured out and you're shooting between them in the real twilight time. And then the third thing, this is something that most of you can't control and not easily control, but if you can, drive far away from light pollution. Get a good dark sky site. If you go to darksightfinder.com, you'll look at the map. Anywhere that you have green up from there, you're going to be in a great spot. It's not going to be fantastic unless it's in the gray and dark purple or black. But we're talking it's going to be great compared to inside the city. You're going to see some cool Milky Way, and you'll be very happy. You'll see it with your naked eye in the green areas. Right. If you're looking into a darker section, you can get away with being standing in a brighter spot in the world. It's just make sure you're looking out into a darker spot. So make sure you're away from light pollution or looking away from light pollution. Now, when it comes down to your camera, what you need is just a wide-angle lens with a fast aperture, which means that you have a very wide-open aperture that's sucking in all the possible light that it can take. Those two things on your camera will make it so that you can see the Milky Way in your shot and use a very short shutter speed. Not going to go too long where you get star trailing. You're going to make sure it's 20 seconds or less. You can go 30 seconds with certain lenses, certain very fisheye lenses, and a full-frame camera. You can get away with 30 seconds before you get star trails. But for the most part, 22 seconds, 20 seconds, 18 seconds, 17 seconds, those are the ones that are going to give you the tightest shot. Get your aperture nice and wide. Recommend really 2.8 at the minimum. Like You don't want to go any smaller than 2.8. But you can see it at 3 and 3.2. I've seen 3. it at 3.5 was my first lens when we took it out for the first time. And I you saw the Milky Way great. 3.5. And I was even stopping it down to 4. And so, But I turned my ISO up higher. So You're going to get noise. Yeah. If yeah. you have to compensate the exposure triangle to get that shot to work at a 4, you will introduce noise into your shot. Yeah. But you'll still be impressed. You'll still be happy with the shot. In general, I think so. Especially if you go the direction you did with the Milky Way, where it's purple and pink, and you can go a little artistic, then it doesn't matter about the noise because you're painting it into an interesting shot. Mm -hmm. And so you mm -hmm. can get away with that. And the last tri tip is just a given. You just have to have a tripod. Do you need to have a very expensive one? No, not in most situations. But make sure you do get a sturdy tripod, a beefy one, one that you can trust that is not going to get blown away because you're going to sit there in a situation where you might light paint and then take a picture of the Milky Way, and you don't want your scenery to change because your camera's moved. Mm -hmm. You don't want the wind to change it while it's on a 20-second exposure and it's running and it's getting blown by the wind and, and moving around. Keep it as still as possible. Get a nice tripod. So quick recap. What I learned, if I want a good Milky Way shot, go somewhere dark. Avoid the moon. Be between astronomical dusk and astronomical dawn. Know when those rise and fall. Get yourself a nice wide-angle lens, something that's 24 millimeter or higher. 
and you want to make sure it's fast, like 2.8 or higher, and then you get a nice sturdy tripod to hold it for a good 18, 15 seconds, 25 seconds long. And just to recap what fast means um, in your aperture, when we say higher, we actually mean lower. 2.8 to 1.8, 1. 1.4. 1. A lower number. Standard. A lower number means it's going to let more light in. It's a kind of the weird aperture. thing that if you're, if you're new to photography, it's this weird thing you just got to get I over. That. Yeah, eventually you figure it out, but you just got to do some research <laughs> and figure out that the lower the aperture, the lower the f-stop, the more light it lets in. So it's just one of those weird things. And so when you think of a bigger number, it's actually a smaller aperture. Why is it controvert? Why yeah. is it contradictory? I don't know. So you'll see lenses that say, you know, it's a zoom lens and it goes from 4.5 to 5.6. That actually doesn't let a lot of light in. You've no. got to have a very bright day. Those are only good for like bright daytime shots. And landscape's fine for those. Oh, you yeah. can get a wide angle zoom that have those numbers, but and it's fine in the daytime, but at night, never gonna use never gonna work. Um, you're not gonna love it. You're gonna hate it. <laughs> so <laughs> um, getting a single lens, whether it's a zoom or a prime, which is a single twenty-four or twenty or you know, seventeen millimeter or whatever, um, you're gonna want a two point eight or lower. So that's so that works out perfectly into what you wanted to talk about next, talking about the lens itself and what angles and wide or short. Yeah, so starting off in 2016, I had my widest lens was that 24 millimeter lens. That was and the tilt shift lens? That was a tilt shift lens, 24 millimeter. I bought it because I always wanted a tilt shift lens. And the 24 was really wide on a full frame. I thought, dang, this is pretty wide. I don't think <laughs> I'm going to go any wider than this. I don't think I need to go any wider than this. Yeah. 24 was the wide, so I was like, yeah, I can get my wide angle and have my tilt shift. So I was happy, you know? <laughs> and so when we went out, when we went out star shooting the first night... And I put that thing on. It was like, yay, 24, it's wide. And, I mean, compared to your 24 and a crop, it was really wide. Oh, yeah, still great wide and compared so, to my crop sensor. When I did a little bit more research and found out that people were using these, you know, 16 to 35 and seven, there's an older thir- 17 to 35, which is what I bought, I couldn't believe how much more area this thing was letting in. The pictures just seemed like ginormous <laughs> at 17 millimeters. Versus twenty four. Oh yeah, it's so, a huge jump. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Just the it. seventeen to the fifteen that we have now is a big jump, and so it's like twenty four to seventeen is a whole new world. Yeah, yeah. So now we've got now we both have the Tamron fifteen to thirties because we ran to Royce. We got totally envious of his gear. Yeah. So we started copying gear envy. Him. We started copying him. So <laughs> <laughs> he had this big monster lens, and we're like, "What is that thing?" We're gonna talk about it more and qualify why we purchased it versus just uh, being jealous and envious. And so we'll talk yeah, about yeah. more about it. it. Wasn't just crazy. Uh, no, we definitely looked, be cool too. Yeah, we definitely looked into it. I mean, there's a reason he has it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we started looking into it, researching, it and said, "Okay." Okay, cool. We'll go into more detail about the Tamron Zoom that we have in gear time at the end of the show. Yeah, it'll make a lot more sense as to why we chose that over maybe the Canon 16 to 35, at least at price. the time. <laughs> price. <laughs> yeah. yeah, still wasn't cheap, but man, it still was price. All right. So I want to talk about the astrophotography shot again because one of the things I learned in 2016 was that, you know, the long exposure shutter. I have done a lot of photography of just taking the scene as is, whatever light was required, take the snapshot and go fast, but didn't often put my camera on a tripod and go long exposure. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different ways that I use long exposure this year. And one of the quick examples I have was trying to capture that International Space Station for the first time. It's a very bright object, so I figured I didn't have to go a very dark sky site to capture it, so Mm -hmm. I risked being in this bright area. I was finding that... If I wanted to have a long streak from the International Space Station, 
because my area was so bright, if I went longer than two seconds, I made the background of the sky so bright that it washed out the bright light of the International Space Station. Mm. If I had been in a much darker area, I could have had a longer exposure and had a longer trail of the International Space Station. Since I needed to avoid blowing out my sky, I didn't care that the building was blown out, but the sky was getting blown out anything longer than two, three seconds. Hmm. So I was forced to get these little little dash marks, dash, 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 of one-second exposures that I was happy with because I got the nice blue, blue-hour sky behind the International Space Station light, mm-hmm. and that was worth it to me. So I was learning, okay, man, okay, I've got to be in a very specific situation or bring an ND filter with me so that I can go in a longer exposure and get the streak I want or the motion with the water that I want or the motion of the people. I mean, in this temple, this area, people were visiting it, walking around it at night. People were holding hands and girlfriend, boyfriends, enjoying the night scene in the summer night, and they were in my shot. So I was taking long exposure shots of the temple so that I can actually blur them out because they would walk fast enough that they would blur themselves into oblivion and they would not be in my shot. So I have a nice clean shot of the temple building because all the people that were there walked fast enough out of my shot with a long exposure. That's a nice tip too. You know, if you're doing a cityscape or something, just you leave your exposure open for 20 seconds, then you're going to blur out most of the people and stuff. Or if you're doing that, you know, in reverse, if you want car trails and stuff, you do the same technique, except they're they're such they're so bright that you just get these you don't see the car at all, but you see all the trails, their lights and stuff. So, yeah. So there's some fun artistic things you can do with a long exposure, and one of the things you need during the daytime, like like Aaron had said, is an ND filter, which is what we're just starting to get into. 2017 is going to be we're going to start using those more, I think, during yeah. daytime. Um, for waterfalls, rivers, things like that, you really want a nice flowing thing, but it's middle of the day. You're going to have to use something to, like sunglasses for your for your lens, basically. Something to cut a lot of that light out so you can get that nice, smooth motion. So. so I went through a lot of situations, different situations in astrophotography and daytime photography and finding objects in the blue hour that I had to play around with different shutter speeds that I didn't expect to have to play around with or have to confine myself to one shutter speed because I'm blowing out maybe something I really needed like that blue sky for the milk, for the shot of the International Space Station. So have the gear you need to get your shutter times that you want and that's something that ND filters are going to solve for me more next year and being smarter with the location that I'm at if I want to capture the International Space Station. Mm. It was cool having that temple building in there but because of that longer shutter and bringing out all the light that was there, I couldn't quite get the streak that I wanted and I would have done better off with a more natural environment. Yeah, having such a bright light made it real difficult to work with, huh? Yep, exactly. Cool. Let's go ahead and take our last break and we'll come back with gear time. We're going to talk more about that Tamron lens that we purchased this year and we'll do a tip of the week and end it for 2016. Today on Gear Time, we're going to focus on the lens that Aaron and I have both bought this year. He got his first, and this is neener, the neener. this is the Neener Neener Tamron. No. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the Tamron USD DI. This is all internal, you know, information they have on there. Yeah, the geek SP fifteen to thirty f two point eight. 
So what it is, is a 15 millimeter to 30 millimeter zoom that's really wide at 15 and then not so wide at 30. And uh, what's funny is, well, yeah, there's not a whole lot of, really when you zoom in, you're zooming in like it's double, but it doesn't seem like double. No, it's, it's not like it goes <laughs> telephoto like you're hoping. It just no. then crops out some of the most interesting stuff in your foreground. Yeah. But the, but it's nice to have some leeway because sometimes you're going from 15 to 18 or 20. It's got marks. So it's got marks here and from 15, 18, 20, 24, 30. You know, and sometimes when you're out there, you do want to frame your shots at 20 millimeter. 15 just a little too wide. You don't need it. Sometimes I, shoot, sometimes I mark it at 24. So it just depends on what you're shooting. You, you're going to find out after using this lens that, that you do like having those markers there because sometimes you will be like, oh, I do like the way 24 looks, you know. Mm, yeah. And um, so you remember that. But we bought this thing. Um, it has this lens cap that is unusual because the hood is built into the lens. So when you first look at it, you take the lens cap off, you've got this big lens hood that's built into the body of the of the lens. And so when it zooms in and out, it has this internal lens hood that goes with it that keeps the same shape. This is what makes it difficult to get filters for this lens because it doesn't have regular filter threads. So there are a couple companies and some knockoffs that make um, some eBay brands that make filters to go over these. And this is the challenge that we're currently having and that we're going to try to hopefully overcome in 2017. Mm -hmm. What I do like about this lens is um, it has noise reduction or sorry, <laughs> this lens has vibration control, which is which is just like um, image stabilizer for Canon lenses. They have uh, Canon, Nikon and Sony variants for this lens. So. That's nice. So you can get the same lens if you're using any one of the other systems. It does have an ultrasonic silent drive, which is nice. Like the autofocus is fast and quiet. I've noticed very little noise coming out of this when I'm focusing. I mean, yeah, virtually I, none. I don't even like. Yeah, exactly. It's virtually no noise. It's really quiet. When I saw this lens that Royce had on his camera, and we said, "What is that thing?" on your camera that thing is amazing and he said oh it's a tamron 15 to 30 we're like what is that it's so i hadn't big. even heard it's of it so before cool and it's massive we saw how huge the front element was in that thing and we were just like in love with it so we did some research and we figured out that if royce is using it for his milky ways it's probably not a bad option so we started doing some research of our own and we picked him up so aaron bought his first and then we really got to use it you know hands-on and uh, he really liked it. We did it for all kinds of landscapes and all kinds of astrophotography. Overall, it's been a great lens. I've had mine for less time, but I'm excited every time I go out to use it. And one thing that I learned when we were doing just a little night shoot with, a, with, a, with an object in the front, and I wanted to do some star trails that night, we had a Can-Am out parked out overnight, and I wanted to do some star trails above the Can-Am. I forgot to turn my vibration control switch off. Oh, yeah. That so because sucks. of that, every time it went to take another shot, it would re-enable the vibration control, and it would do that little jitter to smooth out the picture. But if you're on a tripod, you don't need it. And so every time it took a picture, the picture would snap before it was done settling. And so because of that, I've got little wiggles in every single frame <laughs> from the star trails because what you do is you want to stack all those pictures together and then i have this crazy wiggly shapes that looks like a van gogh painting it doesn't look like a star trail it's <laughs> yeah. still a cool effect if you wanted to go with that effect it actually i think it turned out pretty cool still 
but it doesn't look real. It looks like a painting. Right. It looks really interesting, but it's not what I was really going for. <laughs> so little tip, you know, if you've got a camera like this where you've got image stabilizer or vibration control and you're doing star trails, turn it off. That's so, what I learned the hard way. Some other pros and cons about this lens, especially for those of you thinking about it in the astrophotography realm, and why would you get this when you can get a much cheaper Rokinon 24 millimeter? Mm-hmm. Why would you get that over this? Right. This is a 2.8. It's not a 1.4. It's it is actually very very heavy and very very expensive. We got ours for under $800, but these sell brand new at $1,200. And so, why would you go for it? Pros and cons. The first pro is that you can use it in landscape photography and have an autofocus. On the Rokinons, you only have a manual focus, and so mm-hmm. you must do it yourself. You can't control your aperture from your camera. You must do it yourself on the front of the lens. And also on the Rokinon, you don't have vibration control. So when it comes down to having an all-around versatile camera that you can use for landscapes that's very wide and use it for astrophotography, this Tamron wins completely. Yeah. Now, how does it do on comb aberration? Why wouldn't I just get a 16 to 35 if I really wanted a good landscape lens? Well, because the 16 to 35 Canon, the Mark I and the Mark II, both had poor coma aberration, which means in the corner of your lenses where you have vignetting, you're going to see spreading of the light a lot more distinct on that lens than others. The Rokinon 24mm and the 14mm does very well where you don't have a distortion on those corner stars as you do in the Canon. So in the Canon 16 to 35, the center of your lens, you have really good sharp stars, but then on the corners, they're just angel wings popping out of there. Right. So I think the Mark III does solve some of those problems, but then there again, your your biggest concern is price. So still the the both the Rokinon is the cheapest option by yep, far. by far. If you want to zoom, this is your best option for price. And uh, still does really great on that chromatic aberration on the on the corners of the image. Not and chromatic coma. So the coma. So, which is is it caused by chromatic aberration or is it just totally different? It's just caused by light thing? distortion okay. diffraction. Okay, so the coma on the corners is way um, better on this for the price. It's still a win, you know. So yeah, absolutely. It's been tough being a guy who's owned a 24mm Rokinon, wondering when to pull it out again because I just keep using the Tamron. Yeah, because it's just so convenient. I right? love having the extra wide angle. Mm-hmm. It has good quality sharp images. And when it comes to sunrise and we're done with the star nights, I still have a camera lens on there that is working awesome. Right. So, yeah, we really like that lens. We we could recommend it to just about anybody who was interested in doing the same things we do. It's a very strong, versatile lens if you don't have the money for the Canon Mark III 16-35. Which would be fun to get my hands on. Maybe I'll rent one sometime in the near future just to really do a head-to-head I comparison. I would love to do that. That would be awesome, especially to compare the Sigma art lens to see how they're doing. I know that they're sharp and that they have a pretty good performance on coma aberration, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering how much I will love their versatility of landscape to, to astrophotography. Yeah, because the Sigmas don't really offer a zoom like this. They've got some really nice sharp primes, Yep. but then, then you get, you know, if you want to zoom in or zoom out, you've got to switch lenses. So having a zoom does have its benefits very much so i really can't say enough about the tamron lens i love it and it's making me really debate whether i keep my rokinon 24 millimeter i'm i I want to sell that possibly and get a 14 millimeter rokinon so that at least i have a really wide angle 
good coma aberration lens that's very fast, faster than this, that yeah. I can go to. That would be something that at least gives me a different lens and a different option where yeah. the 24 millimeter Rokinon only changes minorly on the coma. See, and I was looking into the same lens. I, I saw the, the 14 millimeter Rokinon available as well and thought the same thing. And But then when I saw a used one of the Tamron locally and classifieds going for such a good price, I just dropped everything and went, you know, I went and got <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, it was hard to not go it's hard for to, that. Hard to pass up, yeah. <laughs> so thank you guys. This week we will not have a tip of the week because really the entire episode was full of tips. And so why hit you guys up with more? If anything, just remember when you're going out somewhere for photography, don't eat dinner until you get there. Don't eat dinner until the sun has set because so many times we have gone there and gone halfway and we've gone for dinner and then we get done with dinner about an hour later and we show up about 10 minutes late for a beautiful sunset in a beautiful location. And why are we 10 minutes late? Because we took a long dinner and just avoid it, avoid it. If you're within two hours of your destination, don't stop for anything, get there, get your camera out get that sunset good tip so thank you guys for joining us again on our podcast we'll have one more to go in 2016 and then we'll see you in 2017 and maybe that'll be the year that we all get out there and have a photog adventure together all right see you guys have a good one